Good afternoon from Washington, D.C., a day after the destruction of a liaison center between North and South Korea by the North Korean government. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm director of congressional outreach here at FMC, and I'd like to welcome you all to this discussion of the future of relations between the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and the United States. As many of you were likely notified, today's discussion will be interactive. We'd love to take your questions. As the discussion goes on, if you'd like to ask a question of one of our panelists, simply move your cursor to the bottom of this Zoom window and click the Q&A button. You can enter your name and your question, and if we pick your question, we'll bring you on the discussion live on audio only to ask it. So again, if you have a question at any time during this program, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Now to moderate today's discussion and to introduce our two fine panelists, I'd like to welcome one of FMC's newest board members from Illinois, former Congressman Peter Roscom. Congressman? Thanks, Paul. Um, it's a joy to be with you today, and it's timely to be discussing North Korea, and we have two voices that we're going to be hearing from who have deep expertise and deep ex uh, experience in this subject. And what we'll end up doing is having a discussion <clears throat> and then, uh, as Paul mentioned, open it up for, for questions and comments along the way towards the end. So first, I'd like to introduce Ted Yoho. Uh, Ted serves the third district of Florida, which is north central Florida. And he came to Congress in, uh, he's now in his fourth term. And he's uh, going to be retiring at the end of this term. And so, Ted, when you do, former members of Congress Association has a wonderful plan for your life. And we're going to get you very active. You know, you'll enjoy uh, being a part of things. Uh, Ted, for 30 years before coming to Congress, was a large veteran or a large animal. Well, he is a large veteran, but he is a large animal veterinarian and got his, um, his uh, degrees from the University of Florida. So, Ted, welcome. It's great to have you here. And he's Thank joined you, uh, by Dr. Victor Cha. Um, Victor served in the Bush White House and, and in, at the National Security Council from 2004 to 2007. And his uh, portfolio took in, he was a director of Asian Affairs there, and his portfolio took in the Korean Peninsula. And um, interestingly, uh, back when I was in Congress, I met with Victor and he briefed me on a trip that I went to. And so uh, I, I read his book, The Impossible State, North Korea, and I commend it to you all. And Victor, maybe we can touch a little bit on uh, some of the themes and some of the scholarship that you put forward in the book. Victor is now, as you can see by his background, he is uh, at Georgetown University. He's a professor there uh, in the School of Government and also in the School of Foreign Affairs. So Victor, welcome. Um, Thank you. Ted, first question to you. Uh, you serve as ranking member on the Asian subcommittee, Asian Pacific and non the non-proliferation subcommittee. What's your right. sense of about how the Trump administration has approached North Korea based on your consultations with the administration, based on your hearings and based on your background. What's your sense of how the Trump, Trump team has handled North Korea? Sure, I think that's a great question because if we look over the past history um, from the previous presidents, whether it was Clinton, Bush or President Obama, what we saw was a start and stop, start and stop diplomacy. And it was done by you know, the diplomatic community. And each time we did that, we saw North Korea become stronger. They agreed to things. And then before the ink's dry, you know, they stop, they start going against that. Um, and the leaders, our presidents, you know, I don't want to say they capitulated, but there was not the follow through. 
The difference with President Trump, number one, is he met personally with Kim Jong-un. This was historic in nature. So it showed the United States reaching out as a president, as a nation, to um, a country that has been isolated by the world. So that's one thing that is huge in the fact that it was leader to leader negotiations bypassing. Um, and I don't want to put fault on the State Department because you're dealing with North Korea. But when you have diplomacy or diplomats that are negotiating and they fall through, maybe it is time for a different change. The other thing is the ratcheting up of sanctions that you're seeing President Trump do, and he's following through on this. And it's our goal in Congress to give him more tools, i.e. sanctioning banks from different countries that aren't following the sanctions that agreed to, like China and Russia and other countries that unanimously agreed to the UN Security Council, those member states that are breaking those sanctions. We will go after those large banks like the Agriculture Bank in China and the Construction Bank. And it's a bipartisan effort in Congress. So I think those are the big things. And uh, you know, President Trump reached out earnestly, sincerely, and Kim Jong-un, the deck is in his hand or the cards are in his hand for what move we will do next. Victor, what do you think of that? Can you give a critique of the, of the Trump administration? I know we're in the middle, you know, in the middle of this and it's a little difficult to, you know, have an objectivity or the benefit of history on, on these most recent events. But the president's decision, for example, to meet personally with Kim, um, not once, but twice, how would you, how, how would you assess that? What's your sense? Well, first, um, thanks for the question and thanks for having me on this program, uh, Congressman. It's an honor to be here with you as well as with Con um, Congressman Yoho. Um, uh, not only FMC, but also think about CSIS, Congressman Yoho, when you <laughs> <laughs> um, when you step step down from the hill. Um, the uh, so a couple of things I would say first of all that um, uh, Congressman Yoho is right. I think you know. President Trump did what no other U.S. president was willing to do, right? And that was to meet directly with the North Korean leadership. Um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, I was involved in the last agreement, denuclearization agreement we did with North Korea. Uh, and I distinctly remember, you know, working, because we did these talks in Beijing. And then um, uh, when we finished the talks, um, from my hotel room in Beijing, my job was to start to spin the agreement to different reporters who were going to report on it, including at the New York Times and others. And the first question they asked me is, did the, you know, so you got this agreement, have the two leaders agreed? Like have the two leaders contacted each other? And I said, no, they haven't, it's the beginning of the agreement. And then they go, how do you know in a country like North Korea, it's gonna stick if the two leaders don't talk about it. Um, and so in a sense, Donald Trump has tested the hypothesis that uh, was always out there about previous agreements was you need to have a leader-leader meeting to finish the deal. So that's the positive. The negative is that there was never a deal to finish, right? And that um, I don't think was the fault of our State Department because they tried to negotiate in advance of the Singapore meeting and the Hanoi meeting. And the problem was on the North Korean side. They were not willing at the working level to talk about nuclear weapons or anything. And they said, that's entirely up to our leader, right? And so, um, and so in a sense, we walked into these meetings, the president walked into these meetings without any sort of 
spade work being done by his diplomats on this. And so, you know, in the end, I mean, we see now that the, now the situation is not good. North Korea is agitating again. Um, so I think the intention was right, but then the process, uh, largely because the North Koreans were not willing to actually have a negotiation on the nuclear weapons that could then be finished at the top, you know, that was what screwed up the whole thing in the end, right? And so, um, you know, maybe President Trump was a little over eager. Maybe he could have waited and said, look, I'm not going to meet until you let your people talk to our people about the stuff uh, having to do not just with the easy things, but the hard things like the declaration and verification and all this. Maybe he was a little over, over eager to do it, but I mean, he did. He put a lot of capital into this. He put the sort of capital that most presidents were afraid to put into a problem like North Korea because it was so difficult. Um, uh, but the North Koreans have really answered, you know, as they've done, uh, as they did last night um, and yesterday. And, you know, who knows what they're going to be do between now and the election. Do you think, Victor, just to press that <clears throat> point a little bit, do you think that there's a, that it's realistic to assume that Kim Jong-un would ever put nuclear weapons on the table? In other words, you know, he looks around the world and he sees other, other nations, other leaders, <clears throat> Gaddafi and so forth, that have put, them on, put it on the table, walked away from it. Um, Ukrainians walked away from their own nuclear weapons and they see how they were, they were treated and so forth. And then, it, you know, in, in, in Kim's mind, is there ever a scenario where there's a, a, a pathway forward for him? I mean, notwithstanding the, the video presentation from the president on what North Korea could be look like, but is there ever a, a, a realistic approach that Kim survives, um, you, you know, the, the nature of criminal claims against him and so forth? Or is this more process that we're seeing? And there's a benefit to process to keep things cool and quiet, but you, you take my point. Is it realistic that he'd ever come to the table on it? Yeah, I think it's getting harder and harder uh, just because they're amassing more and more capability. Um, um, I think the, so let me put it this way. I, you know, if President Trump were reelected or Vice President Biden became the president, um, I don't think it's hard to get to a freeze for freeze deal. Hmm. I think we could do that. I don't think that's hard to do. I think we could do that. Um, and then the next step going beyond that if, um, um, would be there needs to be some sort of political transformation of the relationship between U.S. and DPRK. Something that's not just about, not about the weapons, but just a broader play. Because that would be the only scenario in which I could imagine the North Koreans then being willing to enter into first arms control, then maybe denuclearization. Uh, but the, the relationship is so hostile now, even after three meetings between the two leaders, right, including the Panmunjom meeting, it's, it's still so hostile um, that I think it's hard to get beyond the freeze for freeze. So I think we could get to a freeze for freeze, or I think this administration likes to call them the phase one part of the deal. I think we could get to that, but it's getting beyond that, that, that that's difficult. And it gets harder the more capabilities they amass. And they are continuing to amass uh, more and more capabilities, um, even as we speak. Ted, what's your view on how consultations have gone with the South Koreans in particular? President Moon has put a lot on the table reputationally of trying to, to, to put this deal together. Um, South Korea has a big presence in Washington, D.C. And, and a bunch of friends 
uh, on Capitol Hill, you and me, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of deep relationships. Do you have a, a view about how the consultation was between the U.S. administration and the Moon administration uh, during these, uh, these outreaches? I know that President Moon, when we've met with him and, you know, dealing with Secretary Pompeo and the administration, we've seen uh, South Korea pushing harder and harder to get some kind, of, some kind of an agreement, whether it's working towards denuclearization, which incidentally, as an aside, I think before negotiations have to start, and I agree with Victor, if you could do a freeze and have a definition of that, I think you could move forward. But ultimately, you're going to have to have some definition of what a denuclearization is. And until then, it's going to be hard to even negotiate. But what we've seen is President Moon has been pushing harder for some kind of a just relationship, whether it's uh, increase in trade or humanitarian aid. And it seems like he's willing to push harder and give more and um, um, bend over to help um, get that relationship going. And you don't see that from Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, I think, is playing it very uh, uh, smart and just staying back and just saying no. And I mean, the perfect example of that is seeing what they did with the uh, liaison center that incidentally South Korea built. And it was something to benefit North Korea, but South North Korea blew it up. And I think um, his sister, Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jung, has a lot to do with it. And we're seeing a stronger role with her. So she's gonna play into this also. Um, and then I asked President Moon when I was over there, you know, if denuclearization and unification happens, what does reunification look like? Does that mean North Korea is gonna become more like South Korea? And just think about that for a minute. Or does South Korea have to become more like North Korea? Hmm. There was quiet in the room because those things gotta be worked out. I do not see the South Koreans becoming more like North Koreans, nor do I see Kim Jong-un giving up power to become more democratic. Mm -hmm. Victor, what do you think? The, how do you interpret the, uh, the, the blowing up of the liaison office at, uh, at Kaesong? Um, it's, it's about the biggest slap in the face that you can give to the Moon government. I mean, as Congressman Yoho said, the South Koreans built this facility for, you know, they built this facility in North Korea and, it, and it effectively it was the, it was the, you know, operating as the embassy for inter-Korean relations, right? Inter-Korean cooperation. And they just, literally, they just blew it up. They destroyed it. So uh, it's a big, I think it's a big um, slap in the face to, to the Moon government. Uh, North Korea is not giving them um, any chance to celebrate after the big election victory they had their party had in the April elections, you know, they were slated to lose big time in those elections, but they, um, they pulled off a major victory. Uh, so that moon is no longer considered a lame duck in his last two years. He's got full, he's got the full legislature behind him. Um, and he's got two more years left in the single five term presidency. And so that, and, and he was focused on in the last two years, really making progress with North Korea. And almost immediately after the election victory already signaled to the world and to the United States, they're going to do inter-Korean railroad cooperation. They're going to do all this stuff. And as Congressman Yoho said, often pushing the United States, you know, pushing the United States to, to loosen sanctions so that they can do this. And the North Korean response has been very clear, which is that, you know, they're not, 
willing to talk now. And I, and I think, as Congressman said, I think one of the reasons is they're building up the credentials for the sister, right? Um, because she, um, these are all being done in her name, um, which may reflect some underlying health issues with the brother, because he's been, you know, he hasn't been seen very much lately. Um, but I think they're also doing this because of our presidential election. Uh, we have mm -hmm. data at CSIS that shows North Korea, on average, does more provocations in U.S. presidential election years than not. Um, and so I think there's, you know, the, it, this was, this act was against South Korea, but it has an eye towards the United States. Isn't that a dis, isn't that sort of a, an inflated view of, of their ability to impact U.S. domestic policy? I mean, really, it seems like we're in the midst of a pandemic, we're in the midst of um, racial turmoil and a lot of other things. And I, I know that uh, uh, self-image is not one of uh, Kim Jong-un's weak points. Um, so is, but is this just an inflated view of somebody who thinks that they can, they can throw their weight around and have an impact on oh, yeah. the presidential election? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, North Korea, I mean, thinks they're the center of the universe. And so they do think that, um, that, and historically they've always thought this, that they, they can, um, I mean, I think the other part of it is, it's not just self-inflated view, it's also practical in the sense that um, they're not gonna put the energy into negotiating now with the US president that they don't know if that president's gonna be around mm -hmm. after November. So it's almost a negative choice, like they can't negotiate now, so they might as well raise the stakes. And, and right. so I think they're doing, they're doing, um, they're doing a, little bit of, a little bit of that as well. Um, and then with Moon, you know, they know that Moon is, as Congressman says, very focused on engagement. So they know he'll be there. Uh, you know, even if they slap him in the face, they know he'll be there when, he, when they come back. So I don't think they feel like they're losing much by, by doing that. Ted, what do you think uh, the U.S. should do in response to, uh, to the, the blowing up of the liaison center? What should, our, what should our next move be, if anything? Well, I think... Our response, uh, that's really between South Korea and North Korea. As uh, we both pointed out, South Korea built that to improve relationships with North Korea. Kim Jong-un, as uh, Victor said, and I agree wholeheartedly with him, uh, it's a slap in the face to Kim, um, uh, President Moon. And I think it's gonna drive a deeper wedge and then President Moon will have to decide how much further he wants to bend over to help heal these relationships and if he does that, it's going to weaken him in his own country. And we're already starting to see that. As far as the United States, I think the best thing that we can do is, um, you know, we need to talk about upping the ante and maybe start uh, military or, um, uh, efforts and campaigns again with South Korea and, and start those up. And I think we really need to work at whatever we can to heal the rift between uh, South Korea and Japan, because that trilateral relationship, that trilateral uh, uh, alliance is one of the strongest in the world. And if that gets weakened, it's going to play into the hands of uh, Kim Jong-un and also China. So I think what America can do is help with that. In addition, I think we need to really get tough on these sanctions with the countries that are cheating. We know that uh, roughly 90% um, of the trade that goes on with North Korea comes from China. China agreed to put UN sanctions on them. And so we need to look at the agreement. What can we do in the UN? What can we do to get China to be held accountable? And what I found, and I think I got anything I sound really good on, I got probably from Victor and um, other stuff I made up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, 
you know, what can we do? And not just the United States, but other countries, other countries need to come to the table because if something were to break out in North Korea, it's not gonna be isolated to the Korean Peninsula. It's gonna affect every country in the world at a time when you have economic decay in the world, you've got a pandemic. I just was on a call today where they're, gonna, they, they're talking about uh, within the next 18 months, you're gonna see famine in the world that you've not seen before. And so we've got all these things mounting up. This is one thing we need to all work together as nations that believe in a peaceful future and do that. And I think America can lead on that very well. I was in Berlin a few years ago and just happened to walk past an embassy and I looked up and it was the embassy of North Korea. And it was so jarring to me and so sort of unsettling. And I realized, wow, I've really grown up in this in this environment where we've had this uh, non-recognition and, and, and so forth. But it raises the point, Ted, that a lot of the rest of the world doesn't necessarily have our view of North Korea and, and they're willing to, uh, to engage with them more. So, Victor, let's, let's focus in, open the aperture up a little bit and look regionally. Oftentimes, I've, I have just imagined a, an imaginary conversation between President Trump and President Xi of China, where President Trump says to Xi, you have a problem with North Korea. We don't have a problem. You have a problem. And here's your problem. Your, your client state that you're supporting has gotten completely out of control and is now being incredibly provocative in the whole region. And either we're going to fix it or you're gonna fix it. If we, the US, fix this, then you're gonna have a disaster on the Korean Peninsula. It will be an economic disaster. It will be an environmental disaster. And you're gonna have a refugee crisis, the likes of which you can't even contemplate. So I suggest, Mr. President Xi, that you deal with this. Now, this is all completely speculative on my part, but it does speak to the role that China has. And I think sometimes some of us have come to the conclusion that, that China has more influence than they actually do. Can you speak to that, sort of the tension between um, Kim and the Chinese leadership and a little bit of the backstory of, of how these, these countries are, are interacting? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think um, uh, China is, Congressman Yoho said, when 90% of your trade is with China, China has a lot of material influence on North Korea. And, uh, but they're very hesitant to use it. And I think they'll only use it if things get pushed right to the edge. Like if North Korea pushes really to the edge with the United States on provocations or you know, something along those lines, then maybe they'll use it. All the trend lines suggest right now that uh, China is simply condoning North Korean be bad behavior because they've loosened the sanctions. You know, there's now commercial imagery. We do a lot of imagery work at CSI. So there's commercial imagery that shows, you know, the area, the Dandong border with China. You know, they built, there's a new bridge there. There's a new highway being built, right? Think, it looks like things are ramping up, not ramping down between DPRK, uh, uh, DPRK and China. And with regard to the Demarche, right, that Demarche, I mean, that Demarche sounds very familiar. I think I've written those talking points in the past for previous, uh, uh, for previous um, folks in government. Um, the, you know, the Chinese reaction always is, well, um, we have some influence on North Korea, and it's mostly negative. We can turn and turn off the spigot. But the only people who can make them come to the table and talk are you, you know, you, meaning the Americans. 
And so um, that is always the Chinese response is that, well, you know, there may be things that we can do, but they don't mean anything if you're not willing to come to the table. And then what, here's the dilemma. Once we come to the table, then China turns the spigot back on and then they say, okay, now you have to solve everything, right? And so when there's no economic pressure on North Korea, China's back, backstopping them. And then they're telling the United States, you have to solve all this. That's not a good negotiating position to be in. Um, and we've ended up there many times, right? In both Democratic and Republican administrations, we've ended up in that position um, and we haven't been able to break out of it. Now, you know, I don't agree with everything that President Trump has done, but on this, I mean, I think he did try to break the mold. I think he really tried to break the mold. You know, when he said he was willing to meet with Kim Jong-un, it made the Chinese nervous, right? Um, um, uh, but the, the, but the, you know, the problem again was that uh, on the core issue of denuclearization, North Korea has not been willing, willing to budge. And, uh, and so we've learned that, um, we've learned, I think we've learned from this that, I mean, there's a lot of places that people can uh, point fingers, you know, these days, DC, people are pointing fingers everywhere. But on this particular issue, you had two presidents, South Korean president, and the US president that were really, I couldn't see two presidents more committed to trying to make a deal. And, you know, this is what happens. North Korea blows up the building, right? Mm. Um, mm. So, Let's talk, there's an audience question on, um, unification. Uh, I'll, I'll read the question, then I'll contextualize it a little bit. What do you imagine the response would be from the Japanese government if there was unification in which the North was able to keep nuclear weapons? So Victor, let's start start with you. How would the Japanese respond to that? Uh, I don't think they'd like it. Yeah. Um, they were, um, you know, the especially as the congressman said the relationship between Japan and, and Korea is so bad right now. It's like about the worst it's ever been, uh, which is not in their interest. It's not in U.S. interest. The notion of a unified Korea with nuclear weapons still on the peninsula, I think, would be very concerning for Japan. Um, I think they would see it as a failure of our alliance with South Korea if we were to allow that to happen. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it could, it could sort of set off a domino effect. Right, uh, where other countries will feel like they wanna, they'd want to do the same thing. But, um, but I think the question also speaks to uh, how bad the relationship is now between our two key allies in Asia. And um, you know, when we were in government, whenever North Korea did bad things like this, we, you know, we'd always say like, let's make lemonade, right? Uh, this lemon. And so one of the things, as Ted said, is that uh, we could, we should use this as an opportunity to get our allies to talk to each other and start planning together, right? Exercising together, these sorts of things. Ted, let's press on a little bit and just go back to your conversation that you shared with us a minute ago with President Moon when you were in mm -hmm. Korea and you were talking about what does reunification look like? You know, there's a lot of comparisons and discussions about reunifying the Korean Peninsula. And many times people look to East and West Germany, and they say, right. well, that's, that's an example. And it seems to me that that's a little bit off in that um, during the time when the East Germans were uh, living in that totalitarian state, most of them knew that they were in a totalitarian state and they, they, they longed to be in the West <clears throat> by and large. There was not as great a, <clears throat> excuse me, a difference from an economic point of view as there is between 
North and South Korea. You know, I mean, it was a big difference between East and West, but it's a cavernous difference between North and South. Do you get the sense when you were talking to President Moon that there's much of a plan there if, if unification were to happen? And I was particularly interested in your observation of sort of a, the pause in the room. I know that there's, there's all kinds of um, South Korean officials that, are, that, are, that have gamed this out. But what's your sense of what unification might look like? Well, when I walk away from that, and since then, you know, I've followed this and I've studied this, I don't think there is a good plan. It's like, let's get to that point, then we'll figure it out. And I think that's not a good way to go on something like this. Um, I thought it was very strategic and I thought it was brilliant to have the second summit in Hanoi, because here you have a communist uh, government that is our 17th or 20th largest trading partner. We've got a good alliance with Vietnam. Communist country we trade well with, and for Kim Jong-un to be able to go there and say, hey, look, I can retain power, but we can develop an economic base. And that's the thing I would hope that, you know, between uh, President Moon and Kim Jong-un, they would work out that kind of, what's it gonna look like? How are we gonna trade? Um, do I retain power in North Korea as the dictator for life? Or are we gonna have some type of opening up? And Peter and Victor, what I have noticed when you have countries like that are ruled by a dictator, whether it's um, uh, Kim Jong-un or Maduro or in China where you have communist you know, rule, what they fear the most is free thinking people that can challenge their system of power. That's what they fear most. And I don't see how those two can be compatible with North Korea and South Korea. And if they can do that, man, I think both of them need the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> um, we'll open it up for questions. So if, if the audience has questions, there's a, uh, a chat feature and um, there's a way to, way to indicate that. Um, and, and we'll get to those as, as they pop up. Victor, what's your, what's your read on how COVID-19 is having an impact on North Korea? You know what, Victor, we can't hear you right now. I think it's a, it's a great, yeah, it's a great question. The short answer is we don't, we don't know entirely. Um, having said that, that um, this country, um, North Korea, um, was, um, sits right between the two earliest and largest outbreaks of COVID in the world. That's in China and in South Korea. South Koreans have dealt with it pretty well, but North Korea has no public health infrastructure to speak of. Um, they've said publicly they have no confirmed cases, uh, but I think there's a reason that Kim Jong-un was all the way over on the east coast of the peninsula on, a, on his private beach resort, as opposed to in Pyongyang, where everybody was wearing face masks. And um, NGOs have reported that at the local level, local officials are now giving lectures about this virus and telling people to wear, fa uh, people to wear face masks. But... Um, but this is, I mean, I think this is the real Achilles heel for a country like North Korea, which is any sort of public health emergency, because uh, they just don't have the capacity. I mean, they just don't have the capacity to handle something like this. They don't have testing. They don't have contact tracing. They don't have anything. Um, but, but we don't know. There are reports that they've quarantined tens of thousands of people. Um, 
we've been using satellite imagery to try to look at hospitals to see if we see, you know, bodies piling up or things like that, not to be gruesome or anything. Um, um, uh, but in the end, we, we, we just don't know. Uh, they've completely sealed off the country and they did the same thing in response to Ebola, MERS in 2015, Ebola in 2012, as well as SARS in 2003. What do you think? I mean, they've, <clears throat> they're, they're a country that's demonstrated an incredible capacity to endure pain and hardship. I mean, and there's, it's a, this is an obvious observation and it's very negative, but when you don't care about your people, there's a lot of freedom in that for the leaders. They just don't care. Um, can can you project or is is there anything that can uh, you could you could opine about how North Korea may be different as a result of COVID-19? So, for example, we know in the West we're we're going to be doing things differently, interacting, workspace, all that um, that's going to be changing. Based on your knowledge and your experience and your travels to North Korea, do you have a view that there would be anything that's, that will be different or will it will just be a, a virus that will have just, just done its damage and then they'll be around for the next thing? Yeah, um, so at least based on past experience, I don't think it'll change much. I mean, not much change after SARS after Mar you know, even though Maris was a Middle East respiratory syndrome, the largest outbreak outside of the Middle East was South Korea. And, uh, and that didn't change North Korean behavior. I mean, they, they feel very comfortable living inside of their, uh, inside of their four walls. And so even a, a, even a, a, a transnational pandemic like this, I don't think will change a lot of their behavior. Uh, recent pictures show that they've even stopped wearing masks. Um, the, I think one of the interesting things would be if there is a vaccine uh, that is, is created, um, you know, whether uh, international organizations would reach out to countries like North Korea to see if they could help them as part of a humanitarian effort. Um, but, uh, but I think there's very little that the North Korean government will do on behalf of the people. Okay, so Ted Yoho, I'm going to throw a question to you that will uh, you'll you'll probably get as a as a former member of Congress next year, um, assuming for the sake of argument that um, Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. So let's just fast forward that and let's assume for the sake of argument, Biden is the next president. If Biden is the next president, you're going to be doing some interview down in Florida and they're going to come to you. The cameras are going to come to you and say, Congressman, give us a view on how you've had your experience with the Trump administration on um, North Korea. Give us your view on how the Biden administration will approach North Korea. What do you, how do you think a President Biden would approach North Korea based on your experience? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball to see. So I can't predict what I would see, but I can look at the past. And if you wanna see one's future, look at their past activity. And if you look at Joe Biden, when it comes to foreign policy, he has had the biggest blunders and he's been on the wrong side virtually of every foreign policy issue forward. The thing with President Trump, and we had the opportunity to meet with Young Ho when he defected, who was the uh, highest ranking diplomat. And it was interesting because we got talking about President Trump and, you know, how do they view him in that. 
And he goes, you know, I was there with the other um, uh, negotiations. And he goes, all of your presidents were very articulate, very well uh, educated, and very predictable. And then he goes, this president scares Kim Jong-un because of his erratic behavior or just the way he comes out. And I shared that with President Trump because it's a card he can use in negotiations. He has the backbone to make these tough decisions and follow through with them. I don't think you're gonna see that with Joe Biden. I, from my personal opinion, uh, as a member of Congress, next year will be a uh, former member of Congress, um, what I see is somebody that will capitulate to, you know, I don't want to say like President Moon, because President Moon has a vested interest right there. We have a vested interest too. But I think Joe Biden would not be a strong president. And I think it'll embolden Kim Jong-un. I think it'll embolden China. And I think you would see America uh, losing stature around the world. Victor, opinion. what do you think? Um, you're, uh, you know a bunch of foreign policy hands that would likely be in a Biden administration, and um, you've interacted with them through, throughout your whole career and uh, our colleagues and so forth. What, what, how do you think uh, a Biden administration would approach the Korean Peninsula? So I think, I think the hardest decision that um, a Biden presidency or even a second Trump presidency would have to deal with is the question of whether we continue to follow the same path in terms of trying to denuclearize North Korea, or we de facto uh, pursue another strategy that de facto accepts them as a nuclear weapon state and then tries to cap and maybe slow down their program and then focus on mutual deterrence, move more assets, nuclear capable assets to the region as part of a deterrence strategy. So, you know, one is to, one path is to continue to follow the path that we've been following, which is to call for denuclearization, say we're not gonna lift sanctions until you denuclearize. The other is to, is to say, um, you know, we, we have to negotiate this as an arms control thing, at least initially, and stop the fissile material, stop the production of nuclear fuel, uh, these sorts of things. And I think that that's going to be the hardest decision because um, um, it's politically very difficult to make that decision too. For people to then say you're accepting North Korea as a nuclear weapon state and entering into arms control like you did with the Soviet Union or others. Um, and, you know, and so that's hard, that's hard. Now, I don't know whether a Biden or a second Trump presidency would be able to Make that make that choice, make that sort of um, uh, uh, you know paradigm shift in terms of how how to deal with this. It would be tough. I do know that North Korea will make sure that they are at the top of the agenda when in January of 2021. Um, they will, will make they sure of that. How will they do that? What will be the moves that that they'll so the, they'll do? So they'll continue to do provocations. I think um, they haven't gone yet to ICBM, but they could go to ICBM. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, or they could um, uh, demonstrate a proven capability of a submarine ballistic, submarine uh, sea launch ballistic missile to giving them the second leg of the nuclear triad. That would be, I personally, I think that's where they're headed. The latter is what, that's what they want to do. Um, um, and, uh, uh, and then if they did do that, 
then it's very difficult to, I don't know, I don't want to, then it becomes very difficult to not accept that they are a nuclear weapon state. If they have a ground-based and a sea-based capability, it's very hard then to carry out a successful. And it's, just, it's basically denial behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And then that, it becomes much harder. So I think that's what they're aiming for. And, they, and I think they're going to try to demonstrate that, um, you know, for the next uh, for the next president. So put you know think think about this <clears throat> question to you both. John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, had a great line that I I always remember. He said, "Washington is the slowest place until it's the fastest place," mm -hmm. and the pace with which things move uh, quickly are just sort of breathtaking. So we're in the midst of this. We're in the midst of this pandemic there's this underlying issue about China that got eclipsed based on the racial tensions, but the China question, wow, it's, it's, it's really, really moving quickly, the anti-China rhetoric and so forth. And the proof of that is there was a bill called the Holding Foreign Corporations Accountable Act that Senator Kennedy introduced, and um, it passed by unanimous consent. Delisting of certain Chinese companies and so forth goes by unanimous consent. Every senator, this is a few weeks ago, says, yep, let it go. Now it's pending in the House. But the fact that there was nobody that was willing to step up and say, well, we've got concerns about this and so forth, tells you everything about the current anti-China um, disposition based on COVID, based on a lot of things. How does, how does not, not just the regional dynamic, but how does China's situation right now, and that is their provocations as it relates to Hong Kong, you know, Secretary Pompeo's assertion that, that Hong Kong uh, does not have the separate status anymore. What do you think, Ted, um, you know, based on <clears throat> uh, how do, the, how do the Chinese play this? Do they play a long game and just have a capacity to endure a lot of pain or do they come to the table in, in, in some fashion and is North Korea part of that discussion? What do you, what do you think? It's a little- you're, you're not gonna see China come to the table until they have to. China's very good at playing the long game. You know, if you go back to Deng Xiaoping, you know, hide your strength uh, or hide your, hide your weakness, hide your, hide your strengths and just you know go along and let let everything else build up and so they have been very astute at that if you go back to what they have done to understand how to deal with china one has to understand what their intent is and i think michael pillsbury book the hundred year marathon is a perfect um roadmap of what they're doing um i'll say dong laid out in 1949 the direction of china for a hundred years and we're 75 years into it and it plays out very well. Their philosophy is you cannot have two suns in the sky at the same time. One has to be removed. And um, you know, I think the I think it was the 19th Chinese Communist Party Congress where Xi Jinping said that the heir of China has arrived. No longer will they be made to swallow their interests around the world. It is time for China to take the world center stage. And then you throw in there, Peter, what they're doing with their aircraft carriers, the aggression in the South China Sea. Uh, building land masses that they've militarized, the intimidation, the coercion of these other countries in the ASEAN bloc and then uh, places, you know, just around the world, you see where they're heading. And for us to take this lightly is unacceptable. 
I am happy that finally, and I know Victor, you played a big role in my education on this. We've been railing on this for four years. Wake up, look at what China is doing. That we're seeing a rapid uh, pivot that I've never seen in Congress. In the last year and a half, the focus is on China and it's to get the supply chains out, whether it's on rare earth metals, vitamins and minerals in our livestock feed, fertilizers, seeds for our agricultural products, or the APIs, there is a wake up in America, and not just America, but the European Union and other countries, Australia, and you know, we can look around the globe, they're saying, wait a minute, China played their hands strongly in the pandemic, um, you know, withholding PPEs, telling companies they can produce there, but those PPEs will stay in their country. And then the, 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 the slowdown in the APIs and supply chain. So we're seeing this rapid pivot. And of course, we as a nation don't want another conflict, a kinetic one with anybody, let alone China. And so you can have a frontal attack or you can put economic pressure. And if we collectively as nations realize that and we move manufacturer, in fact, we've written policy papers on this called manufacture the ABC method, which is anywhere but China. And we're starting to see manufacturers moving out of there and we're incentivizing them. Uh, with the DFC that got created last year, where you can invest in America with foreign aid dollars for a two-year period to shore up the, um, the supply chain, mainly on APIs. And it's, it's exciting to see that because it's a bipartisan effort and uh, bicameral. So, Victor, you got the last word. What do you think about the, the, that Chinese overlay and um, North Korea's role in it? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, uh, in the sense that... Um, that quote about Washington moves slowly until it moves quickly, because we're certainly seeing it on China. And, you know, and, uh, you know, as Ted mentioned, the COVID, COVID pandemic has only accelerated that, right? Because we've seen sort of what they've done in terms of their, their supply chains. I'll, I'll just say that, I mean, I don't know how much of an impact it has on North Korea. It probably makes the North Korea problem harder to solve because of all of our other problems with China. And from a North Korea's perspective, they like it best when the United States and China are arguing with each other. They don't like it when we're colluding with each other. So they will use that as an opportunity to draw even closer to China. Um, but what it does, what this does pose for many other countries, not just in Asia, but around the world is they're going to have to choose. I mean, we're getting to the point now where countries are going to have to choose and particularly those countries that are, you know, their number one security partner is the United States, but their number one trade partner is China they're gonna to have to make choices and they can't hedge, right? There used to be a time where they could hedge, but we're talking about you know, uh, moving supply chains and things, they can't hedge anymore, right? They're really gonna to have to choose. And it's, you know, this is gonna be, a, it's, it's gonna have a major impact on international relations more broadly, right? That's what I teach at Georgetown, international relations more broadly. Um, and uh, Ted's right, I mean, like, Every, everybody has kind of awakened to this, right? And in particular, the American business community, that, which used to be very pro-China right. market and everything, they've really, as you both know well, they've really shifted on this. Well, you have both been incredibly generous with your time today. Uh, Congressman Yoho and Dr. Cha, thank you. And uh, the audience knows that they've just been able to dial in for 45 minutes and talk to a frontline policymaker on North Korea and talk to a leading intellectual on North Korea. And your insights have been um, really, really uh, 
quite bright and, and incredibly helpful. So for all who support the former members of Congress, we're deeply grateful for your support and we look forward to having uh, other venues and other opportunities to stay in touch. So with that, we wish you well and our Zoom call is concluded.